Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy is probably going to fall one day. In fact, it should have toppled over by now. Scientists travel to Pisa every year to measure the building's slow descent. They report that the 179-foot tower, which was built in 1173, moves about 1 of an inch a year. Quite significantly, the word Pisa means marshy land, which gives some clue to why the tower began to lean even before it was completed. Another issue is that the foundation is only 10 feet deep. The reason the Tower of Pisa is leaning is because it was built on a weak or shifting foundation. What does that have to do with 1 Kings chapter 5? Hope to make that clear before we're done today. Look at verse 6 with me. Now then, issue orders that they may cut cedars from Lebanon for me, and my servants will be your servants. And I will give you wages for your servants in accordance with all that you say. For you yourself know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut cimber like the Sidonians. When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he greatly rejoiced, and he said, Blessed be the Lord today who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, saying, I've heard the message which you sent me. I will do everything you wish concerning the cedar and juniper timber. My servants will bring the timbers down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will have them made into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me. And I will have them broken up there, and you will carry them away. Then you shall do what I wish by giving food to my household. So Hiram gave Solomon all that he wished, of the cedar and juniper timber. The time was right to build the temple. Historical events were never so favorable to such an undertaking before, nor would they be in the future. Not only was Israel able to subdue their traditional enemies and make peace with Egypt, but David and Solomon had made an alliance with Tyre, a nation that could provide the plans and the material for this temple. Solomon was wise enough to seize the opportunity for an unprecedented building program. In his fourth year on the throne, it says, Solomon went forth to build a temple for the Lord. These chapters describe his careful preparation for this project, as well as the meticulous and extravagant way in which the construction was to be carried out. As you can see from verse 6, Solomon wasn't above flattery to get what he wanted. Not that he needed to. Offering to pay someone whatever wages they ask for pretty much guarantees you're going to be doing business together. And so upon receiving that message, a practically giddy Hiram said, Praise the Lord for giving David a wise son to be king over the great nation of Israel. Well, eventually the smoozing stopped and the two men would get down to business. They signed a formal peace treaty and then put their people to work. Before long, cedar and cypress timber was rolling into Israel and wheat and olive oil was rolling into Tyre. Later, Hiram would also become Solomon's source for gold. 
It's important to note that this happy arrangement was in fact for the entire 20 years it took Solomon to complete both his palace and his own personal house. And really, 20 years is a long time to be friends. You'd think if people had been good friends for 20 years, they'd be way past having to worry about the petty grievances that put so many friendships on the rocks. But when you're being slowly seduced, as Solomon was, you start to act and think differently. Hence this odd entry into the narrative that we are going to see in chapter 9. It reads, It took Solomon 20 years to build the Lord's temple and his own royal palace. At the end of that time, he gave 20 towns in the land of Galilee to King Hiram of Tyre. Hiram had previously provided all the cedar and cypress timber and gold that Solomon had requested. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the town Solomon had given him, he was not at all pleased with them. What kind of towns are these, my brother? he asked. So Hiram called the place Kabul, which means worthless, as it is still known today. For some reason, Solomon felt compelled to alter the arrangements that he had with Hiram. Before he had paid for the timber and gold with food, now suddenly he is paying with real estate, which seems to have been fine with Hiram until he saw the 20 towns that Solomon had given him. Imagine going on a blind date. Your best friend is fixing you up so you have absolute confidence that he's lined up a really attractive girl. You're so anxious to meet her that you can barely contain yourself. But when you get to her house, out steps the homeliest looking girl you have ever seen in your life. Not only that, you can smell her from the car. And even if you couldn't smell her, all the flies buzzing around her was a sure giveaway. That's exactly how Hiram felt when he saw the real estate the Psalm was giving him. The towns were so undesirable that Hiram dubbed the entire area worthless. Which apparently wasn't an exaggeration because the name stuck. But it's Hiram's question to Solomon that I want you to notice. He said, what kind of towns are these, my brother? The two words that best describe the emotion behind that question are disappointment and confusion. But the deeper reality is that Solomon just wasn't the same guy he'd been 20 years earlier when he first struck that deal with Hiram. At this point, the seduction of his heart has been in the process for several years, making him gradually more selfish and materialistic. Now, he was still a long way from rock bottom, which he is going to get to, but this transaction is a clear indication that he had changed, and not for the better. But at this point in our story is really Solomon's shiny moment. From its Mediterranean port, Tyre was able to establish an impressive shipping fleet. 
And Israel had also aided Tyre's selling efforts by defeating the Philistines, which was the other regional power traditionally involved in sea trade at that time. Therefore, an Israel-entire alliance was a natural, mutually beneficial result of Israel's newly won prominence. Together, the two countries could create a monopoly by exploiting Israel's control of the land-based trade and Tyre's expertise in shipping. In his reply, Hiram accepted the terms and outlined the procedure. His men would cut the trees in Lebanon, prepare the logs, and then take them down to the coast of Joppa, either on ships or bound together as rafts. At Joppa, Solomon's men would claim the timber and transport it overland to the building site about 35 miles away as the crow flies. Now, some commentators have accused Hiram of changing the terms of this agreement. Rather than allowing any Israelites to come into his country and help with the work that Solomon had proposed, he insists on shipping all the lumber all the way to Israel. But if anything, Hiram was doing even more than what Solomon had asked. He was willing to, surprise, willing to supply cypress as well as cedar, and as the leader of a country that excelled in sailing, he also offered to arrange for all the shipping. This whole transaction is a model of fair business and honest negotiation. Both kings followed through on their commitments with each man keeping his part of the bargain. We may also see Solomon's wisdom in international trade as a model for our own personal relationships. Rather than expecting people to do us favors all the time, Christians should make a point of treating people fairly and generously, especially when we are involved in any type of kingdom work. Then our integrity will commend the gospel we preach, and perhaps that will open a door to give us the opportunity to preach Christ to them. Now one commentator thinks that Hiram's aid in temple materials is deeply significant. He writes, so that even heathen nations, whether friendly or conquered, took part in the, in the building of the house for the God of Israel, and so contributed indirectly to the glorifying of God. It was a setting forth an act of the following verses. The earth is the Lord's and all that is therein. Psalm 24.1 For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor of all the nations. Psalm 22.28 And all the heathen shall serve him. Psalm 72.11 So we see that Hiram's workmen in Lebanon were not worshippers of the Lord. And the aliens in the land of Israel were not Jewish proselytes yet. Yet God used both these groups of outsiders to help build his holy temple. Now the Lord would have all men to be saved. But even if they are not believers, he can still use them to fulfill his purposes. He used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army to chasten Israel. And he even called Nebuchadnezzar my servant. He used Cyrus, king of Persia, to set Israel free and help them to rebuild their temple. This should encourage us in our praying and our serving for the Lord because he can use people we least appreciate to get his will done on this earth. 
And we see that God can even work through unconverted government officials to open the doors for his people or to meet any needs that they may have. Look at verse 11 with me. Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pure oil. This is what Solomon would give Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. It says, the Lord kept on giving Solomon wisdom. This can be seen in the peace between Hiram and Solomon. Now, this peace was more than just the absence of war, since there had never been any prospect of war between these two men. This peace was a harmonious relationship of trust and goodwill, expressed in a covenant and as a formalized mutual commitment one to the other. And notice also that the Jews and the Gentiles worked together on the temple. Why? Because in Ephesians chapter 2 we read, Although we as Gentiles were once strangers and far off from the covenants and the people of God, God destroyed the middle wall of partition, bringing Jews and Gentiles together. Likewise, the church today is a temple of God composed of believers in Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. It is being built up to the glory of the living God as living stones, as Jews and Gentiles are added to the temple by the Holy Spirit of God. Did you know that the king of the universe has also made a covenant with us to accomplish his will on this earth? This is Philippians 2.13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work, for his good pleasure. Is this not always the case? Is it not because we believe God's promises that we serve and labor for him? Let's reduce that principle to bare bones. Theology drives ministry. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete that. And I realize that sometimes it seems that the good work he is doing in us will never be completed. But it is precisely because we have these big kind of kingdom promises that we can remain on our feet and not lose heart. Where does the energy come for our Christian walk unless it comes from the solid promises from God's own mouth? Someone may say, well, I sure don't see the fulfillment of too many of those promises in my life right now. But they are like the CIA's aerial surveillance photos in the Middle East. Photos that are so sharp, a viewer can read the time on the wristwatch worn by a soldier on guard duty down in Iraq. So too. The Lord's promises may seem very distant, but they are going to prove to be very accurate. He will complete the work that he began with us. And that is the foundation of kingdom labor. 
Verse 13, Now King Solomon conscripted forced laborers from all Israel, and the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. Then he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were in Lebanon for a month and two months at home. And Adoniram was in charge of the forced laborers. Now Solomon had 70,000 porters and 80,000 stonemasons in the mountains. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies who were in charge of the project and ruled over the people who were doing the work. Then the king issued orders and they quarried large stones, valuable stones, to lay the foundation of the house with cut stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gibbalites cut the stones and they prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. In time, the practice of that kind of forced labor would bring Solomon under some strong criticism. And even though the conscription involved really a very small portion of Israel's citizenry, the Jewish people resented Solomon taking 30,000 of their men to work in Lebanon four months out of the year. And that critical attitude is going to help strengthen the people's revolt against Rehoboam and to participate in the division of the nation after Solomon's death in chapter 12. And indeed, when it came to labor and taxes, Solomon did put a heavy yoke on those people. But in fairness, if you will remember that God had warned the people through Samuel that when they wanted a king, just like all the other nations, instead of having God be their king, well, these were the kind of things they were told to expect. There are consequences to our choices, aren't there? Now for us, we serve the most benevolent king in all of history, King Jesus. But the principle still applies. Namely, he is the king, and we are his servants. Here in our account, we see that the king commanded, and the workers commenced. There was no hesitation, no reservation, and no argument. My friends, that is the way we are always to be. When our king speaks, we are to obey. I think of Mary. They're out of wine, she said to her son at the marriage feast in Cana. Then she went to the servant and said these words, Whatever he says to you, do it. That same word applies to us this morning. Whatever he says, let's do. Whatever the king commands, let's begin. Here we see the work crew that built the temple. Psalm's wisdom was again seen in requiring that his crew spent one month and three away from home. Now the family is the oldest of all the institutions, even older than the church. Our very first thoughts are associated with it, and we should not be absent from our homes more than is, that is necessary. Do not forget the proportion here, one month away and two at home. Now, verse 17 says, They used large and valuable stones for the foundation of the temple. I understand that the stones would need to be large and that they would also need to be hewn. But who of us, in building a house, 
would make a foundation from precious stones. We have a tendency to think out of sight, out of mind. If it doesn't show, well, then it doesn't matter. Perhaps Solomon, however, understood that all things are open and exposed before the Lord and that nothing is hidden from his sight. Maybe that's why he chose costly stones. For although men would never see them, he knew that they would please the Lord. Building things is not my strong suit. Some of you know of my carpentry incompetence. But many years ago, for some reason, I convinced myself that if I just had a pneumatic nail gun, I could do a whole lot better. But for my safety and yours, Connie said no. I can now look back and see the wisdom in that. For if I had had that nail gun, all that would have accomplished would have been me messing up projects faster than ever. But even with my lack of understanding in such things, I know you have to have a good foundation on which to build. So what foundation should we be building our lives upon this morning? Ephesians 2.19. One second here. I did it again. That's all right. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God's Spirit. It's only by building our lives on the foundation of Christ that offers us safety and security. Well... What happens if I don't do that? I mean, I'm my own person, and I and I alone will determine what is true for me and how I'm going to live my life. Well, let's see what Jesus says on that matter. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet, it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell, and its collapse was great." Here's the famous story of these two men, each building a house. It would seem that both men were equally skilled and used the exact same material, and yet one house stood while the other house collapsed. And the only difference was in the foundations. One had built up on the rock, while the other had built upon the sand. 
Now, the comparisons in that story are also paralleled by some contrast, some things that made these men different from each other. First of all, these two men possessed two different characters. Jesus calls the first man a wise man. He calls the second man foolish. The Greek word for foolish is where we get our English word moron. When Luke tells a story, it says that the wise man dug deep. Now, I'm sure it probably cost him a lot more to build on that rock. You can build on sand fairly cheaply, whereas to build on rock takes a lot of hard work. But to build on sand takes little time, and I'm sure it's just a whole lot more convenient. Once in a while, my mail route one of the boxes will fall over. This usually happens because the post wasn't put down deep enough. The thing is, though, when you looked at it, it initially looked like all the other mailboxes in the neighborhood that have been properly installed deep in the ground. Can you just hear the wife over breakfast? Honey? Do you think maybe if you would just dig a little deeper and put some cement in, our box could be put back up? That way I wouldn't have to get out of the car and lie on my side to get the mail out of the box. I want us to understand that it costs time and energy and effort and additional funds if you're going to go deep in life. Now you can be cursory if you want and stay on top of the shifting realities you can be quick about it on sand, but you can't go too fast on rock. Once again, I'm sure they both looked about exactly the same until the rains came. And please also note that both houses saw the exact same rain. That tells me that apart from some horrific teaching today, both Christians and non-Christians are going to undergo the same types of storms in this life many times. There is no such thing as a Christian kidney stone and a non-Christian kidney stone. Believe me, I know whereof I speak. Everybody in this room at one time is going to be affected by some type of storm. Everybody here is affected by the negative realities of life, ministry, and family. It may not be the same, but one thing is true of all of us. We are all going to get rained on sometimes. Life is not always going to be sunshine. That is why it is so critical to have our lives built on the right foundation. In May 2010, when the tropical storm Agatha had finally finished its course, a 330-foot sinkhole opened up in downtown Guatemala City. Now, like all sinkholes, this one caused the ground to collapse suddenly. But in this case, it also sucked down land, electricity poles, a three-story factory, and sadly, even a security guard into its deadly pit. According to one report, the sinkholes in the United States are most common in Florida, Texas, Alabama, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania. The ground beneath these states is rich in easily dissolved rock types, 
And so when enough water seeps into these formations, they collapse, creating the large crater known as a sinkhole. Land that looked stable and sturdy and strong on the surface suddenly collapses, often producing havoc for anyone who lives near the sinkhole. Unfortunately, our lives can sometimes resemble the danger hole of a sinkhole. What do I mean? When we are too busy to spend time with God, or when we refuse to deal with past hurts, habitual sins, secret addictions, or character flaws, all we are doing is setting ourselves up for a collapse. Now the surface on our life may look stable and secure, but underneath the exterior, we're actually sitting on a fragile base. The storms of life, or even just the normal process of living, can expose our hidden vulnerabilities, causing a spiritual or relational sinkhole to open up. We are all building our lives on something this morning. And one day, barring the rapture, that last and greatest storm, known as death, is going to reveal what foundation we truly built our life upon. And the Bible tells us there is only one foundation that is safe to build your life upon. In the end on the Sermon on the Mount, it's a series of pictures that Jesus gives, and every one of them involves a stark contrast designed to force people to choose. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. No third gate. There's a narrow road and a broad road. No third road. There's a good tree and a bad tree. No third tree. There are true disciples and false disciples. No third category. There's a house built on the rock and a house built on the sand. No third house. There are people who do what Jesus says and people who hear but don't do it. The only time you would see the difference between these people or in their lives, homes, or ministries is how they erected them during that storm. Only the storm reveals the nature of our foundation. As long as the sun is shining and everything is going great, you won't think about what you're building upon. You may not even care what you're building upon. But the storm has a way of letting you know what kind of foundation your life is truly resting on. Notice the language. In both cases, the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house. Whenever you have rain and floods and winds and houses being knocked down, well, that's a major storm. That teaches us that the storm season came on both of them. You know, in some ways, I wish the Christian life was the way that some televangelists make it sound. According to them, all you have to do is come to Jesus and it's all sunshine. Just come to Jesus. He has the keys waiting to your new Cadillac. Just come to Jesus. He has the keys to your gated community. He's got the healing for your every disease. 
And to be honest with you this morning, you can build a great show house with that kind of preaching. It looks fabulous on the outside. But according to this text, a storm is coming. Nature was unleashed and the winds blew. And then it was the foundation that mattered the most. So as we finish up today, I'm going to leave you just with one thought. You have to understand something about foundations. You can't pour them while it's raining. You can pour a foundation before it rains. You can pour a foundation after it rains. But what you can't do is pour a foundation during the rain. Likewise, whatever foundation you have, you need to get solidified before the storm. So when the storm comes, you're not in a crisis. I wish I could tell you that obeying God's word means no storms, but that's a lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. What I can tell you, though, is adhering to God's word means that the storms are never going to have the last word. So this morning, if your life isn't built upon the rock of Christ, today can be that day. Or if you are a believer, I pray that today we all recommit to building every area of our lives on the solid rock of his crucifixion. Let us pray. Father, I do want every area of my life to be built upon that stone. Because I know, Lord, that it is the safest, the best way to live this life. It makes me think of that song. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.